Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Tegan, I got a joke for you. What is it? How do you make holy water? I have no idea. You boil the hell out of it. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Nuneman from APM American Public Media. This is the Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversation. You just got a joke from the beloved musical duo Tegan and Sarah. That'll help break the ice. They're on tour supporting their album Love You to Death, and you will love to death the playlist. Mm. They will spin for us later in the show. Plus, we speak to actress Rashida Jones about her TV show Angie Tribeca, Modern Hollywood, and her theory of the overdog. Spoiler alert, that's not a food item. Nope. Also coming up, cello genius Yo-Yo Ma underestimates himself. Comedian Nagin Farsad teaches us how to make white people laugh. Hmm. And we learn the answer to one of the great ancient mysteries. How come donuts have holes? Stand by for enlightenment. And if all that sounds familiar, it's because this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired last June. So cast your mind back to a time when you could still filibuster a Supreme Court nominee. And when, as at any party, we started with small talk. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are joined by Richard Lawson. He is the film critic at Vanity Fair. Richard What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? I'm going to be talking about a healthier, tastier chocolate that some scientists kind of discovered by accident. Oh, excellent. Mm -hmm. Great. Scientists are working on the chocolate problem. (laughs) The happiest of accidents. Hey, some of us do have a chocolate problem, Brendan. Let's not be condescending. Tell us what's happening in this veritable Manhattan project for foodies. So a brilliant scientist at Temple University, he was tasked with getting crude oil through pipelines more quickly. So like it had to do with the viscosity of the oil. So he figured out that if you pass it through electrical fields, it goes quicker or easier or something. And then mm. someone at the a chocolate company, I think it was uh, Mars, they were said, can you try that with chocolate? Because it's been gunking up our machines. Oh. So he made it pass through this electrical field. It changes the kind of molecular makeup of the chocolate. And in doing so, removes some of the fat. So it's it goes through tubes better and it's better for wow. you. Well, better for you. But I mean, does it still taste good if you remove the fat? Well, the LA Times, where I found this story, says that some of the research tried it and noted that it tasted better. So that's not really been scientifically proven. <laughs> but I'm going to cling to that with both hands. If you have yeah. a less fatty chocolate bar and it tastes better, then I think we're done here as humans. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that sounds a little too good to be true. And like maybe like in, I don't know, six weeks after eating the chocolate, you know, you, you turn into like some Willy Wonka <laughs> character or something. But for now, apparently there's 300 pounds of just sample chocolate lying around this lab at Temple. So if anyone wants to go to Philly and, oh, and yeah. find out for themselves, there it is. I'm on my way. Wow. Richard Lawson, thank you so much for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now, time for cocktails. Shocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then challenge a bartender to capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's like history is Niagara Falls, over which is pouring hundreds of thousands of gallons per minute of booze. All right. Tremendous. First, the history part. This week, back in 1847, a great American put the finishing touch on one of the world's most popular snacks. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. The history of the donut is, yes, full of holes. Most folks agree they're derived from a fried delicacy from the Netherlands called an olikoek, or oil cake. Then at some point around 1800, Americans started calling them donuts, probably because they were made of dough and shaped kind of like a nut. But when did someone first poke a hole in that nut-shaped dough? Smithsonian Magazine credits Hanson Gregory, a sea captain from Maine, who piloted a spice boat. 
Before he'd set sail, the story goes, his mom would pack him a nice bunch of donuts, flavored with the spices he carried in the ship's hold. Only problem? Mom's donuts were always uncooked in the middle. So one summer day in 1847, Captain Gregory grabbed a little round pepper tin and used it to punch holes in the treats, eliminating the uncooked center. Back on the mainland, he taught his mom this technique, then sent her ring-shaped donuts to pals in nearby towns. Voila, an iconic snack was born. Of course, there are variations on this tale, some less believable than others, like the one that claims Captain Gregory invented the hole out of necessity while piloting his ship through an ocean gale. Supposedly, to hold his donut in place, he jammed it over a spoke in the steering wheel. Whatever actually transpired, in the captain's hometown of Rockport, he's revered as a hero. A plaque there commemorates him as the godfather of the hole in the donut, though he never bothered patenting his creation. As he told a reporter in 1916, quote, I don't suppose Peary could patent the North Pole or Columbus patent America. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm on the line with Griffin Cooper. He is lead bartender at 40 Paper in Camden, Maine. That's along Maine's Rock Coast, where Captain Hanson Gregory hailed from. Griffin, you heard the history. What drink did that inspire you to create? So the name of the drink is the Mortal Eyes. And I got that name from a quote from our beloved captain in an interview that he gave. And he said, I cut into that donut the first hole ever seen by mortal eyes. It was a momentous occasion, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, trailblazer, (laughs) so to speak. And I got to thinking about, um, you know, the captain was an importer of spices. Their family was Dutch. Those things kind of led me to put together a drink that combines those ingredients. So what are we starting with? I'm, I'm guessing that maybe you're going to use Yenever, the Dutch gin. That's right. Uh-huh. And also an equal amount of Laird's Applejack, which is an mm. apple brandy. Okay. Laird's would have been probably the most readily available commercial spirit of the time. Great. And it's also like, apple, I feel, is like something you might find in a, in a donut, maybe apple jelly or... Absolutely. Sounds delicious. Yeah, let's do it. Um, as a sweetener, we're going to use allspice dram. So kind of Christmassy. Yeah, we've, we've got some nice warming spices. Perfect for summer. Perfect for summer. <laughs> well, perfect for donuts in summer. Yeah, we'll take it. This is not a, a tart drink, it sounds like. Well, to add a little bit of acidity and some tartness, uh, we're going to use lemon juice as well. Okay. And uh, does the thing have a garnish? We are serving this up in a coupe glass with a cinnamon, nutmeg, and sugared rim. Uh-huh. Like the rim becomes like a donut. Exactly. It sounds great, but I, I, I confess I'm a little disappointed. I thought, you know, maybe instead of olives, you'd do like a spear of donut holes to go with this thing. So the, the lab in the kitchen, what they're working on currently is we're trying to bake donuts around the coupe glass. Oh, my God. So you can finish your drink and then just go to go to town. I think we just made you a billionaire, man. It's, it's these ideas. Griffin Cooper of 40 Paper in Camden, Maine. I really hope for his sake that he's not successful perfecting that invention there. (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure dough-wrapped glass is not going to help you pass a health inspection. (laughs) Glass is my least favorite donut filling. Mm. It's trivia for you. Uh, Folks, you'll find that recipe at our website along with many, many others. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. 
and now the soundtrack in which your favorite musicians DJ your dinner party. And our guests today are Tegan and Sarah. The Canadian twins started as an indie folk duo, but these days they're highlighting a more pop sensibility. Oh, yes. On their latest album, Love You to Death, they apply catchy hooks and harmonies to a range of topics from queer themes to their own relationship. Speaking of the latter, here they are to present a party playlist and to bust each other's chops. This is Sarah, and I actually don't have dinner parties that often. Why not? What's wrong with you? Well, I don't know. I mean, for a while I was living in New York, and it's like there's no space for a dinner party. Oh, no, Uh, the podcast is over. (laughs) I'm like, what would it be like to have a dinner party? Right now, I'm really obsessed with this song by Mickey Blanco called High School Never Ends. Short change that grand. Trouble making these baby faces. I'm blending with some man. Asking me about poetry and I want to leave, but I can't. I actually heard it when we were premiering one of our songs on Zane Lowe's radio show in Los Angeles. It was playing in the background, and I asked the engineer, I said, oh, what is this song that's playing? It sort of has like a real melancholy feeling, and it just sounds fresh, like something from the future. Like high school never ends, like high school never ends. One thing that I am realizing in my mid-30s is that I have a really different take on what happened to me in high school. I think my experience of high school, I would have told you after high school that it was bad, but I think that there was actually quite a lot of character building. And although, you know, there were times where we were bullied and there were um, certainly social situations that were traumatizing and difficult, they also challenged us to think for ourselves. So I find this song very interesting because it's obviously a very adult perspective on high school. Why don't you just Tegan and I have such a different vibe. I think people sort of imagine us having really similar lives or similar apartments. And actually recently someone asked us if we live together and if we have bunk beds. And I was like, we're 35-year-old women. All right, so this is Tegan. My track is very upbeat. I'm picking uh, an incredible artist named Shora. And the song is called What's It Gonna Be? That kind of reminds me of all my favorite things from the 80s and early 90s. She has this uncanny ability to pair really deep, sad lyrics with upbeat production. There's a line in the song like, if you let me down, let me down slow. And there's just something kind of just heart-wrenching about the acceptance of this statement and yeah it's like paired with this like really great feeling music like for almost a week now I just I put it on every night while I'm getting ready for bed and I just love it I don't know why it just it it just gives me such a good feeling but it's kind of really sad Tegan's more of an organized person. She would have like food out and there would be like a whole schedule. And I think I'd probably already be like half a bottle of wine in and then I'd be like, should we eat? What oh, happens next? Like, nightmare. You're the person's house who I don't go to dinner parties because I'm like, <laughs> they're just not good at it. I'm too hungry. I always have to go to McDonald's on the way home. Oh my God. What a diva. Don't worry. I'll have lots of almonds for you, Tegan. <laughs> so this is Sarah and I'm going to pick the third song at our dinner party and it is a French artist called Stromae and the song is called Papa Ute and it's actually 
weirdly enough, a song that I discovered at a dinner party in Montreal at a friend's house. Dites-moi d'où il vient, enfin je saurai où je vais. Maman dit que lorsqu'on cherche bien, on finit toujours par trouver. Elle dit qu'il n'est jamais très loin, qu'il part très souvent travailler. Maman dit travailler c'est bien, bien mieux qu'être mal accompagné. Maybe we haven't even served food yet. Oh my God, I hope we've eaten. No, no, no. Now we're just like, we're in cocktail land. You know, we're probably like getting a little bit tipsy and I want people feeling, I don't know, almost celebratory. Even though it's sort of got like a really intense message lyrically, it's in French. Most of my dinner guests aren't even going to know what the heck it is. I think the chorus actually just translates to Father, where are you? But it's like a jam, like a real jam. And I just think the words actually just feel nice, even if you don't know what they are. I have to pick a song off our new album. Oh, that's so exciting. Okay. <laughs> what is it going to be? My life tethered like Like a twin or a son Scared to be severed right Right before we'd begun. I think that at this dinner party, I would probably play a song called White Knuckles off of our new record. Maybe it could be like with Papa Ute, you know, it's about his father. So maybe we'd be discussing our relationship, our relationship, because yeah. the song is about our relationship. That's right. so. so I could see it fitting in. Like I could casually be like, oh, well, Sarah wrote the song called White Knuckles. And when we were in the studio, she revealed that it was about our relationship and some of the harder times in our band. And then I would put it on and I wouldn't feel like a total jerk. Dinner Party soundtrack from Tegan and Sarah. Their album Love You to Death is out now. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But coming up, actor Rashida Jones tells us the secret to Hollywood success is talent and hard work. No. Cellist Yo-Yo Ma likens music to martinis. And we got bad news for people who don't like food pictures. When the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We should let you know this is an encore broadcast of an episode we first aired last June. It's well worth another listen, though. Oh, yeah. Later, cellist Yo-Yo Ma talks about his Silk Road Ensemble. Plus, comedian Nagin Farsad tells us we need more capitalists in our lives. Hmm. But first... It's time to meet our guest of honor. That's right. And this week, it's Rashida Jones. She acted in some of the most respected comedy shows of the last decade, including The Office and Parks and Recreation. And these days, you can see her on the TBS series Angie Tribeca, which is in its third season right now. It's a spoof of police procedurals in the vein of comedies like The Naked Gun. Here's a clip in which Rashida's detective character, Angie Tribeca, and her new partner drive to a crime scene. He's having trouble winning her over. Boy, you don't let anybody in, do you? I have my reasons. What you're not about to tell me. Let's just say I was engaged to my first partner and he vanished under mysterious circumstances. I was engaged to my first partner and he vanished under mysterious circumstances. It's okay. I don't want to know. You just don't let up, do you? No, I don't want to hear Fine. it. Fine. I'll tell you. 
<laughs> Not always the highest of brow here. But I love it, though. When I spoke with Rashida, I asked if she ever has a moment where she thinks, I went to Harvard for this. Yeah, but you know what? This is kind of like a coming out party for me because the truth is, like, Airplane is just as dumb and like that's just always been my favorite those have just been my favorite jokes and I do know a lot of smart people that like these types of jokes I don't know why it's just there's something that's so fulfilling to like for joke to pay off to be to be told and pay off so fast it's like the rate of joke telling that's so satisfying but yeah I definitely wonder what happened in my life (laughs) (laughs) But there was a while there, you mentioned Airplane, where, you know, this sort of broad spoof, whatever we want to call it, thing uh, was popular. Why do you think this went out of style? And why do you think the world was, is ready for this now? Maybe there's some sort of cultural reason. I think in general, though, this comedy, this kind of comedy is very easy to watch, and it's very difficult to execute. Mm. And I think people try it's just not now doing it i'm i'm realizing that divide and it's very challenging you know because it's it's highly choreographed it has to everything has to land perfectly for the joke to be funny so it takes kind of the whole village of production and post-production to make it work but i think also you know maybe people thought for a while that it was like too silly for them and it wasn't highbrow enough and you know we we've just come off this trend we're kind of still in it of all these mockumentary style um you know comedies Mm -hmm. and that's great it's like a new way to tell a story it's a new way to laugh without the audience laughter cueing you but i think that we're kind of like in a cool place culturally where high low is sort of blending and to me this show is that where there's like a blend it's like dumb jokes told intelligently um you know you have to you still have to use a little bit of your brain to understand the jokes but you can also just kind of relax and rest assured that if you if there's a joke that you don't like that you have 10 seconds and there's going to be another one for you to grab onto so you you gave a speech at your alma mater harvard the other day uh, and yes. you talked about the overdog. You, you said, America loves an underdog, and you're not underdogs. It doesn't matter if your application was a sob story or if you were the first person in your family to graduate college. No one cares because now you're Harvard graduates. You're overdogs. Get used to it. <laughs> and it occurs to me, <laughs> and no, it's an interesting point. Uh, it occurs to me, you are the ultimate overdog in some ways, right? I mean, not only did you graduate Harvard, but um, yeah. you kind of grew up in L.A. And, and you grew up in a family with connections. How have you worked to kind of overcome that perception? Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm privileged in so many ways. You know, the way I was brought up, my education, and, you know, I chose to squander all of that by becoming an actress. <laughs> but, um, you know, in in some ways, I feel really lucky because I have that. And then I also have all this other kind of like really cool, uh, really complicated heritage. You know, I'm a mm-hmm. woman of color. Yeah. I'm Jewish. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm living at a time when I when I have a, a, a lot of benefits. I can be I can feel equal. But the truth is, a lot of people in my position who have the same heritage are not. So, mm-hmm. you know, what the other instruction I gave during that speech was, you know, you have to care about something else besides yourself. It's really important. And I think especially if you do have that privilege and you're an overdog, you kind of have to you got to take people with you and you have to make it about mm-hmm. more than yourself. I mean, that's my parents. I'm lucky in the sense that even though I grew up in L.A. and I come from privilege and I have an education, my parents are both very compassionate 
um, very mm. thoughtful and very giving. And that was that's something that's been instilled in me. And I I don't think that I could ever feel comfortable just being like, get yours. You know, here I am coming for the top and forget about everybody else. Yeah. I think that was the Harvard Business School speech maybe happening simultaneous. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> with your speech. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, you know what? This isn't directly related to that, but I also, when I, when I think about you and I think about a lot of your peers, um, you know, Amy Poehler, Aziz, uh, Andy Samberg, and y- you guys are all having your moment right now in television and the movies and, and just really firing at all cylinders with your careers. From the outside, at least, and a little bit from the inside, having interviewed a handful of those folks, everyone seems pretty well adjusted and clear headed, um, yeah. which hasn't always been the case in L.A. You know, you've been in L.A. Right. Your, your whole life. Ha- has there been like what has there been a professionalization of Hollywood? Or... I think that those people that you mentioned and I, and I think really the, what they have in common and what I think is like a really nice trend that's coming out of L.A. is that. It's just content creation. So mm. those are all people who are not sitting waiting for jobs. And I did it kind of begrudgingly because I wasn't getting work. That's, you know, I wanted to be mm. a writer, but I was too scared to do it. And I finally did it because I wasn't getting jobs and I wasn't getting jobs that were satisfying. So all those people yeah. they produce, they write, they create their own content. They, you know, they also act in things that are not theirs. They have friends who all do that. So the mm. community now supports the fact that everybody wears multiple hats and you know that's i think you you kind of either need to be well adjusted to to flow f- through all those different kinds of modes or yeah. i don't know nature nurture or it's sort of like you know it makes you readjust because it's very humbling to create your own stuff so yeah. you you will end up having to be well balanced you know that's really interesting yeah to be successful it requires a certain self-discipline now that maybe it didn't. Yeah. It's not enough to just be this thing, like this thing that people project onto anymore. I mean, yeah. now you see, like, even, you know, if even if you're not in Hollywood, you're self-branding all the time. You're, like, updating your Facebook page. You're, you know, you're, like, whatever. You're in, you have Everybody has a persona, like an online persona. So, you know... It's there's a it's kind of a 360 approach to your career and your life now. And I think, Mm. you know, the people who do it well probably know themselves better because there's not it doesn't feel like there's a disconnect between who they really are and the stuff that they're making. There's a meritocracy now. A little bit. Sometimes, (laughs) sometimes. Not always. Trust me. Not always. There's I know have a lot of talented friends that haven't had the luck yet. All right. Um, you've been on the show before. We already asked you what question you're tired of being asked, and you talked about your family. You know, I'm just tired of being asked about them, um, not because you didn't love them, but just because it's an old story. So our second question is, tell us something we don't know, and this can be a piece of trivia, or it could be an interesting personal fact about you that you haven't shared before. Um, I love malls. <laughs> I love the mall. Like the I, I don't love them all. I love the mm. mall. The mall. Love it. Like the like Beverly Center. Like Beverly Center. Like... Yes, yes. I grew up going to the Beverly Center and the Century City Mall, and mm-hmm. the Sherman Oaks Galleria, made famous mm. by the movie Valley Girl and Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I just there's something so comforting about like. You go look at some tennis shoes, and then you get a Wetzel's pretzel, and then you go to San Rio, <laughs> and then you go see a movie. You could spend all day in there, and it's like temperature control, and um, mm-hmm. you meet your friends there. I don't know. I, lo- I just love malls. 
I love what, that everybody's, it, everything's available in one place. But don't when you go to a mall now, aren't you a little bit like, I can get a better deal online or... It's not about value. It's about accessibility. You know what I mean? It's like mm. if you if you gotta if you gotta do four things and you gotta get a pair of new tennis shoes and you mm-hmm. gotta get an iPhone charger and then you gotta buy a bra, you can do that mm-hmm. in like forty minutes at or the buy mall. Or buy a whoopee cushion at Spencer's Gifts. Um, yes. Oh, Spencer's Gifts, so good. <laughs> Spencer's Gifts, I feel like would be a good collab with Angie Tribeca. Frankly, like I feel like there's a lot of <laughs> Angie Tribeca x Spencer's Gifts. Yeah, I'm into it. Rashida Jones, you can catch her show Angie Tribeca on TBS or find her at Foot Locker. Apparently. Uh, and as Brendan mentioned, Rashida stopped by our show once before. And uh, didn't you solicit her help in finding a girlfriend? Am I remembering? Yeah, that might have happened. Yeah. Well, you can find a link to that awkward moment at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. <laughs> and Rashida, I'm still waiting to hear back on that. Good luck. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. Or in today's case, Brendan, visual representations of food. Perfect for radio. Yes, we'll do our best. Uh, So as you and I both know from covering the food scene for a bunch of years now, there's been an explosion of folks obsessively photographing their meals. Explosion? Yeah. (laughs) It's like nuclear winter out there when it comes to food photographs. It's not good. The general consensus is this is a a terrible thing for society. But there's a recent study out of the University of California which suggests actually photographing your meal might be good for you. Lord help us. I'm sorry, but don't worry. There are caveats. I spoke to USC Associate Professor of Marketing Kristen Deal. She is one of the folks behind the study. We met up appropriately at California Donuts in Los Angeles, which Food & Wine says makes some of the most Instagrammed food in America. I first asked Kristen to describe her study. Okay, so generally we're interested in what photography does to people's experiences. So we're all looking at people when they take photos versus when they don't take photos and how do they enjoy their experiences. So whether photography actually enhances enjoyment. Right. All right, well, let's. how did you compile this data, first of all? What, what kind of scenarios did you set up to determine whether people were enjoying themselves with photography more than without? So we created different like, either scenarios or actual experiences for people. You know, we sent them on a bus tour or we intercepted them in a, a farmer's market. Well, let's, let's go with that one since this is a food segment. So you, you just went up to random people at a farmer's market? That's pretty much it, yeah. So we, we approached people who were having lunch in a, a farmer's market similar to Grand Central in LA, but it was a Reading Terminal in uh, Philadelphia. We uh, approached people and asked them whether they would be willing to participate in a study, and we gave them a short written description. That's nice that you asked them first. You didn't just like say, you're in a study now. Tough. Yeah, like, that's kind of considered uh, good manners. <laughs> ethics, I think it's called. <laughs> also ethics. So we asked them whether they would want to be in a study. Um, we gave them a short description that we're interested in people's experiences, and half of the people had a little bit added on to it, and were told, we're interested in people's experiences, but since people take a lot of photos, we would like you to take some photos of your lunch. And after the fact, we gave them a short questionnaire. Okay, and what did you find? So what we find consistently is that people who take photos tend to enjoy their experience more. And that's probably surprising to you, and it was surprising to us, but... Yeah, because I think what most people think is that if you're taking photographs, you're not interacting 
as intimately with your food or with other people and the whole experience becomes channeled through your camera. So I have to say that we didn't look at social interactions. So even though there were some of the diners were alone, some of the diners were with other people, it was about their experience, not about the other person's experience. Oh, so, so if you had spoken to the people who were dining with the people who were taking photos of their food, they might have actually been experiencing less enjoyment. That may be the next paper, yes. <laughs> so um, so we're really focused on what does it do to you um, as, the, as the experiencer. What we find is that it does get people more into the experience. One of the really nice studies we have is that we had people go through a museum with uh, eye-tracking goggles. And so we could actually see what people look at. And what we find is that when people have a camera, they tend to look lo longer and more frequently at the things they're going to photograph, which in a museum tend to be the artifacts. And, and in a restaurant, what were, I guess they just paid closer attention to their food? In the restaurant, we don't have their photos, but that's what we assume, yes. They had their own cameras, and we don't know what they took photos of. But oh, man, you didn't compile the pictures? That would be like a great coffee table. <laughs> we have some great pictures from uh, a different study from uh, holidays. That could be a coffee table book. Like, what are the kind of photos that people take over Christmas holidays, and what do they want to keep versus not. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining there's not a bunch of pictures of the in-laws. There's more pictures of the Christmas tree and of presents. Um, it depends on what your goal is. So this is not part of this paper, but we're also looking at does the intent uh, with which you take photos make a difference? So is it uh, you want to keep it for yourself or you share it? And if you intend to share it, you tend to take more iconic pictures. So Christmas tree shows up more often presents show up more often, smiling people. Um, that is fascinating, but actually brings up uh, another good point. My understanding is that this study was a kind of misreported in the media who said that what the study said is that posting pictures of your food on Instagram is what was making people happy. That's not entirely accurate, right? Right. That's not true. <laughs> so, um, so we don't speak at all to posting and in fact if posting means I'm taking a photo and right now I'm un uploading it like uh, as you're eating as you're eating we don't think that would help that wouldn't make you happier we don't think so we have one study which um, I think conceptually is similar where we tell people they can also delete photos and we show that when you do something like that which basically breaks the experience then you don't have the benefits of greater enjoyment. Actually, I, I've experienced that myself. If you're, you're taking the photograph and that's nice, but then having to sit there and think of a caption and then waiting for it to upload and putting filters on it, after a while you start feeling annoyed because you can't get back to the food that you're eating. Yeah, so we should have titled this article so that people would understand it better, like take pictures now, Instagram later. So I'm in a non-visual medium here is are there any studies about whether i will enjoy a donut more if i'm recording myself eating it as opposed to photographing the donut we don't have any data yet on this but you know we could start right here and you eat it and then we'll see how okay. happy you are this donut has like a panda bear face on top of it made out of oreo cookies and frosting here we go mm. i think i think it's working <laughs> Dr. Kristen Deal, the paper she co-authored, appeared in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. Enrico, real talk. Okay. Uh, you heard our history segment about donuts earlier in the show. Mm -hmm. You got hungry for one, and you came up with a reason to eat some. That's crazy talk. I was reporting on science. 
All right. That's what I do. All right, we're going to take a break while Rico takes a hard look at his motivations. But coming up, our chat with master cellist Yo-Yo Ma. When the dinner party donut, excuse me, download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, your audio arts and leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. In a few minutes, we'll hear a song from the band Big Thief. And coming up, we speak to Yo-Yo Ma, an exquisite musician who doesn't think highly of his conversational skills. This is going to be a terrible, terrible time for you. Trust us, it won't be. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time around is comedian Nagin Farsad. Hooray. Yeah, hooray. (laughs) Can we get a bigger hooray, Rico? Huzzah! Huzzah! (laughs) Nagin's degrees in African-American studies and public policy naturally led her to a career in comedy, or more specifically what she calls social justice comedy, or a way to use humor to push back against Islamophobia in America. Her 2013 documentary, The Muslims Are Coming, earned the Comedy Vanguard Audience Award at the Austin Film Festival, and her new book is called How to Make White People Laugh, Welcome, Nagin. Hello, white people. Hi. The title made me laugh. So in your chapter called I Used to Be Black, yeah. you say, quote, the race question in the United States since the beginning of its inception has been black in relation to white. But what if you don't fit into that binary? So tell us, what is your experience of that? Well, I mean, I grew up sort of like feeling black, like, you know, sometimes kind of black, sometimes really black. And by the way, I wasn't like Rachel Dolezalling. I knew I wasn't black. I wasn't delusional and crazy. It's just that like I was looking at icons and I was looking to fit myself into something. Because because these were people of color that were in the culture, basically. Exactly. And, you know, I was obsessed with stuff like a different world as a kid. And like Mm. I saw myself in that. And so I sort of poured myself into the black struggle, the Mexican struggle. I grew up around um, a really significant Mexican-American minority group and really walked around wanting to be Mexican. Um, Mm. And so it was just sort of like any minority group that had a mainstream identity is the group that I kind of wanted to glom Mm -hmm. onto. Mm -hmm. So did your Persian identity suffer? Well, my Persian identity is that thing that happens when I go home. Mm -hmm. And we spoke, by the way, not only Farsi at home, the language of Iran, but also Azerbaijani, which is Mm. the language of Azerbaijani naturally. So I would go home and speak two other languages, not English, and be Muslim. Mm -hmm. And then I would go to school and be like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to try and like hang with the Mexicans now. Wow, so you're doing major code switching. (laughs) I mean, back and forth, between multiple different I think a lot of like hyphenated Americans, right? Like you're Iranian Americans, you're Pakistani Americans, you're Sri Lankan Americans. Like I think a lot of us go through that. Mm. Um, If you'll just allow me to speak on behalf of all of them. Oh, (laughs) Who are, we, who are we to argue? So the book is called How to Make White People Laugh. At risk of spoiling this whole book, can you give us some pointers? Can oh, you tell us a thing oh, or two about how to make white people snap. laugh? Um, one of my rules about social justice comedy is that you have to make it inviting and warm like you're sitting inside of a burrito, right? The burrito <laughs> you know, Sneak it in. Sneak it in. It's like if you're hearing a fart joke, it's actually um, about criminal justice reform. Wow. And those, are, those are some of my secrets. I see. That's sort of amazing ability to <laughs> combine those two polar opposite things is just what we want when you're answering these etiquette <laughs> questions. Are you ready for these? Ooh, I think so. All right. Here's something from Hannah via Instagram. Hannah writes, I have a lot of socially progressive friends and I consider myself to be pretty caring, but I wonder how to balance caring about everything. How do I explain or explain my way out of friends' invitations 
to a different protest slash hashtag revolution every day. <laughs> oh, my God, Hannah, me and you have the same friends. Is that right? Look, I used to be a policy advisor for the city of New York. I interned for C-SPAN, not to brag. Oh, goodness. And I was out there. I was in the field holding protest signs. So, like, I am on absolutely every mailing list. And I get <laughs> every every email that comes. It's patchouli scented. Oh, no. and, uh, and it comes with, like, free poster boards so you can make your own bespoke protest signs. Um, so, like, I feel this question. Uh, nice. yeah. uh, and I think w- what we what we need, really, both of us, is, um, a, like, some bastard capitalist friends. I mean, I think we need to, like, make friends that'll just invite us to dinners. <laughs> and then even the kind of friend, let's say, that would even pick up a tab instead of, like, splitting it six ways. Mm. Um, and then with, like, artful consideration to who ordered extra French fries. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, we need... So get, get new friends that are not quite so progressive ba- as well. Bastard capitalist friends. That's what we need. Is that the opposite of progressive? Uh, I didn't know that. No, that's great. <laughs> yes. BC friends. All right. There you go. That's right. <laughs> it's the opposite of PC. <laughs> it's PC. BC. So find those people and order extra French fries. Perf. Here's something from Emily in St. Louis. This is a very short question. How do you handle or tell a friend that they talk way too much? I think, you know, one of the things that you could do is just sort of have a lot of, like, chewy foods on hand, like taffy or, like, Sour Patch Kids, or, like, something that'll occupy someone's mouth for, like, uh-huh. some solid mm-hmm. moments. Um, that's oh, one option. The other that's thing is, good. like, every time they say something, you could relate it back to someone who has died so that, you know, they're, like, talking about roller coasters. You could be like, you know, my great uncle John loved roller coasters. He's dead now. And that kind mm. of stops the conversation, I feel like. <laughs> this one's actually for real because we all know people who talk too much. Um, I might be that person in your life. I'm so sorry. Please give me saltwater taffy. Um, you know, it's... my cousin was killed by someone answering a question very similar to this. And so oh I'm God. actually. It's really. Do you guys mind if we yeah. just get, move on from this? Way to bring it up. So this next question comes from M in D.C. And M writes, my husband and I go out to dinner occasionally with another couple. We're both native English speakers. One member of the other couple is a non-native English speaker, but her English is excellent. Her husband also speaks her native language. And sometimes at dinner, they'll start speaking to each other in that language. Probably they're discussing something innocuous, but it always makes me feel self-conscious, like maybe they're talking about us. Am I just being silly and paranoid, or are they being a little rude? (laughs) Good question. That is a good question. That's some white people right there to like <laughs> to like not know what's going on for like 25 seconds because another language is being spoken and the fear of it is such mm. that's just some monolingual well. white people right there mm. um maybe because i speak four languages that's a language brag i uh maybe. <laughs> that's one language <laughs> Maybe you have a different perspective on this question than the rest of us poor solo It doesn't bother me at all whatsoever. And then the other thing I would say is you can never underestimate how little people are thinking about you. Even when you're sitting right in front of your face, um, they are not talking about you. They are talking about, like, the the shrimp cocktail. So I think that's really what it comes down to. Dean Farsad telling our audience how to behave. Her book is called How to Make White People Laugh, and her movie called Third Street Blackout is available to rent or own now. And folks, contrary to Nagin's opinion, we are very interested in you and what you have to say. Send your etiquette questions to us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org.
Yo-Yo Ma is one of the best-known classical musicians in the world. He has produced 90 albums and received 19 Grammy Awards. His latest Grammy win was for the album Sing Me Home, which is a collaboration with the Silk Road Ensemble. They're a kind of super group of musicians hailing from countries along the legendary trade route that ran from Europe to China. The ensemble is the subject of a documentary called The Music of Strangers, directed by Morgan Neville. Mm. Now, I've become kind of a classical music dork in my dotage, (laughs) so when I met with Yo-Yo... I confessed he's someone I've always wanted as a dinner party guest. Well, guess what? This is going to be a terrible, terrible time for you because you're going to be so disappointed. From now on, you'll be dining alone. <laughs> you mean I won't have my, my image of you to keep me company after this? You're going to ruin it you, for me? You mean your imaginary friend that you always have a seat for? <laughs> That's right. Yo-Yo Ma. Come on, save a space for Yo-Yo. There is no Yo-Yo in the world. <laughs> no, no, no. Yo-Yo's coming for dinner. I gotta set the seat, and he drinks only bourbon. This show has been nothing but one long march through ruining all my heroes. So let's keep let's exactly keep it going. No, that, I'm, well, I'm teasing. I've had wonderful encounters with some of my guests. What a life you've had! I'm, well, come on. What a life you've had! Well, unfortunately, we have to talk about your documentary. Oh, okay. Well, because I would like to just talk to you about my biography. Sorry to bore you. Yeah, but if you could help me for my audience articulate um, how do how do you describe the music? Of the Silk Road Ensemble. Well, um, in a way, it is the music of our planet because between the different groups of music, whether it's, you know, Malian music or Indian classical music or Arabic music or Persian music or, uh, or classical music, which, of course, is part of world music, which often, which is funny, it's a funny thing uh, when you say, okay, you know, I play classical music. And then, so there's, there's world music and then there's Western classical music, you know, mm-hmm. sort of not spoken in the same breath. You know, we're, we're really interested in how music is made everywhere. And since everywhere has music, it's like food, you know, mm-hmm. what's the local food, how it combines into different ways uh, and creates new tastes. So it's a constantly evolving thing. And we're just trying to understand it. You know, sometimes uh, uh, do it as, uh, you know, it was, but also bring it to its present versions. Perform a fairly wide spectrum of music. Do you have difficulty, for lack of a better phrase, code switching from the Silk Road Ensemble to I don't know performing Beethoven or, or something like that? Is it does it no. sharpen your musical talents or does it kind of? Brendan, this is a great question. When I was eighteen, you know, I used to go and during the summers to the Marlboro Music Festival, which is a great festival for chamber music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, small group ensembles that play is very intimate. And to go from there and, and then during the year to play with an orchestra, a much larger ensemble, I thought that was hellish. I thought, you know, that took a lot of adjusting. Um, obviously, 10 years after, it meant nothing to switch. And then 10 years after doing Silk Road, it's all the same. <laughs> it's about sharing. Well, what about the human voice? It occurs to me that you have the, the, this kind of very primal singing element to some of the music. 
I was thinking that for someone so technically proficient, that might be jarring. A human voice is inconsistent from one day to the next. Is that well, jarring? Yes and no. Well, it's sort of like, you know, you would understand that, you know, when you switch from a gin martini to a Merlot, what, what the difference uh, would be. And, and would you ever do that in... That means it's Monday uh, in instead sequence. of Saturday for me. <laughs> well, that's, that's one thing. But if, would you do that within three hours? Theoretically, because you are a, a very sophisticated uh, analyzer of such uh, social I, I, habits. I would do that within three hours. Expert. That seems reasonable to me. Yeah. Okay. So, so my answer to you is that part of cuisine mm. is some, you, your dessert may have taken three days to prepare, mm-hmm. but your main course, you might have just thought about it 30 minutes before with ingredients that you just had. Mm. And you mm. knew it would work. So, so basically, what we do at Silk Road, the idea is to present something that is organic and unified, and that's where you know the idea of narrative and story storytelling takes place. You don't want to have a chopped up version of a meal. You want to provide a unified experience where you can get to that magic, where that moment of conviviality and socializing becomes a memorable moment. When are you happiest or most delighted? When, when, when all these instruments and different traditions come together and introduce you to some new musical ideas? Or is it the passing back and forth of distinct traditions that you, know, you find interesting? Can I be incredibly naive and, and say that I am most thrilled when there's a moment of humanity that is reached, and we all know it. Hmm. It's like that magical moment at a dinner party, you know, just by some random example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've heard uh, of them. Yeah, you know, the, these things actually are, are nice. And um, you go from a speaking with your table companion to the left or to the right, and there becomes a one-table conversation, and everybody's listening, and something gets passed around that is deeply meaningful to all. Somehow, it's not a pre-designed subject, but something, everybody comes to that moment, and there's a realization why we have a dinner party. Uh, You know, the, the whole package is sort of saying, we're so grateful to be alive. We're so grateful for friendship to exist, because this is what it's all about. Yo-Yo Ma, a very gracious guest. Indeed. The documentary about Silk Road Ensemble is called The Music of Strangers, and it's out now. All right, and folks, that concludes this encore broadcast of the Dinner Party Download. Jackson Musker is our senior producer. Our associate producers are James Kim and Krista Ripple. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer. Thanks to engineer Bill Lance. Our intern is Emerald Douglas. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to spin on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. The indie band Big Thief earned praise for their aptly titled debut album Masterpiece. Mm. They also got a ton of buzz from a bunch of South by Southwest gigs last month, including a solo set from frontwoman Adrian Lenker at our own live event. Wonderful. This week, the band released a new single. It's called Mythological Beauty. Bon appétit.
Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. All right. So, uh, how'd that sound, Jackson? <laughs> Brendan Francis Noonan. Il a le son du coq d'oranger. Oui. Et aussi, Brendan, il a le cerveau dans un sandwich au fromage. Hein? <laughs> Guys, I don't speak French, and this sounds a little bit rude to me. Dude, no one's talking about you, okay? Oh, okay. Idiot.